From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're talking with our esteemed veteran registered investment advisor, Adam Morse, and our human economic database and fearless CIO, Michael French. This last 2020 year has been definitely uh, topsy-turvy to say the least. So many investors are left asking, is it wise to run to cash to avoid volatility? In other words, as the market goes up and down, should we avoid those downturns by cashing out our investment and then trying to get back in whenever it recovers? Michael and Adam answer that question along with many others in today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to our podcast each and every week. We appreciate you. Please send us any questions or suggestions for episodes that you wanna hear along with any questions for the guys at podcast at assetbuilder.com. All right, without further ado, let's get to the show. All right, good morning, guys. How are y'all doing today? We're doing well. well. How are you guys? Doing pretty good. This is our second attempt at an intro, so hopefully this will go better. What do you think, Michael? It cannot possibly go worse than that first one. And (laughs) nobody's ever, if we ever have a blooper reel, that should make the reel. Yeah, Yeah, that that was rough, but this one's already better. What What are we talking about today, Jared? All right, so when the stock market is in turmoil, many investors are tempted to go to cash and wait for the dust to settle before getting back in. This is from Forbes.com, by the way. Um, One of the issues here is how to time your exit and then also your entry. Aside from the fact that in the financial markets, we only know this information in hindsight, the notion of getting, uh, the notion of going to cash until the market recovers also ignores another very real but less visible danger missing out on the recovery. Michael, when the stock market is in free fall, holding cash helps you avoid further losses, right? Even if the stock market doesn't drop on a particular day, there's always potential that it could have fallen or will tomorrow. This sort of risk can be completely avoided by holding cash. So why not shelter your investment from an unyielding market? So I think, Jared, the way you asked the question, it, you know, it kind of it kind of sets up a lot of things like, well, if I knew when to get out and if I knew when to get back in, then wouldn't I be better off? And the answer is, if you've got a time machine or a crystal ball, you can probably make a lot of money, you know, on a lot of things, Super Bowl's coming up, you can probably make Mm -hmm. a killing there as well. Um, But you don't, you don't have a crystal crystal ball. And so that's one thing. I think the other thing is you, you have to acknowledge that the, there's a cost to holding cash. So Ray Dalio uh, is an investor who runs one of the largest investment funds in the world, uh, Bridgewater Associates, and he talks a lot about the cost of cash. And so simply holding cash has an impact. So in 1980, if you had had a dollar and you had gone out and you had said, I'm going to spend it or I'm going to save it. Um, if you had simply put it in a mattress and thought 40 years later it was going to have the same purchasing power, you would have been really shocked when you showed up and needed more than $3 to buy the same thing that it cost you a dollar to buy back in 1980. So that's just the impact of inflation. There isn't really a realistic chance of just sitting on cash and having it be worth what it's worth today 20 years from now. So what happens is people try to jump in and jump out, jump in and jump out. And there are studies that show that, by and large, people are not successful with that either. Um, so you can't be successful 
trying to just hold cash and you can't be successful jumping in and jumping out, uh, really what you need to do is commit to something, find a plan, commit to it, stay with it. Now, Adam, cash is also psychologically soothing. So during troubled times, you can see it and you can touch it. From a mental health standpoint, yeah. is that a valid argument? So the analogy I use when this comes up is, you know, if you can think about the investments that you hold, you hold shares of something. So the shares have a price, right? Based on what people are willing to pay you to take those shares off of your hand. So when you log into your brokerage account and see the value drop, you're seeing that offer from the marketplace fluctuate. But what you're not seeing is the number of shares that you own going up or down. You still hold the same asset. So the way I would kind of, you know, uh, correlate that if, you know, if you're a homeowner, your home, whether you know it or not, your home fluctuates in value every single day. You're going to get a different price tomorrow than you would have gotten today. It might be by a couple dollars or a couple hundred dollars, but your home fluctuates in value. But if your home drops in value by 5%, it doesn't lop off 5% of the square footage. You still have the same home. It's just fluctuated in value. And for some reason, that that doesn't upset us. Like we, we just understand that our home moves in value. It doesn't change the asset. And if I hold the asset, in this case, your home, if I live in my home long enough, most of the time, it's going to go up in value or at least hold value. Now, certainly you can pick pockets of time in history where that has not been true. But by and large, statistically, you're, you're going to make a return on your home. So it's the same thing with any other asset. In this case, stock shares or bonds, it's it's an asset. And the asset doesn't change characteristic just because the price of the asset has changed. So if you can digest that and internalize it, I think it can make it a lot easier to stomach, you know, seeing market fluctuation. Michael, what happened to investors that switched to cash during the pandemic this last 2020 year? Yeah, again, it, it depends on when you switched. So, uh, Adam, what was the peak of the market? February, what was that date? Yeah, so the, the peak was February 14th. And that okay, was February 14th. And just as a proxy, we're using the S&P 500. You could have picked a lot of different things that would have this same kind of correlated behavior. But for this discussion, let's look at the S&P 500. It was at 3380 on February 14th. Okay, so Jared, you're asking, what would have happened if I sold? Well, I would have sold. And I would have gotten the most money that I could have ever gotten historically for the number of shares that I held up until that point. Now I would have had them. What would have happened? Markets go down and I would have had cash and I would have had cash and I would have had cash and I would have had cash. And then markets would have started coming back up and I would have had cash, I would have had cash, I would have had cash. And today markets are higher than they were then. So it would have been a bad decision. So what would have happened if I sold? I'd be worse off. Uh, what people really want to know is what would have happened if I had sold at the top, bought at the bottom, and still been invested today? You're like, again, right. if, with your crystal ball, if, if that's what you had done, give us a call. We'll, we'll buy the crystal ball from you. And we'll, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll fundamentally trade what we do as a business. But 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 the but the answer is if you had sold if it's just a pure what would have happened if I had sold even if you had sold at the top today you'd be worse off you're mm -hmm. better off being invested today than you would be 
if you had sold. Now, Adam, we talk about, Michael talks about a crystal ball, but surely there are some people that don't need a crystal ball to make pretty good educated guesses on when to good in and good out. I mean, some people at least do it successfully, don't they? Well, so every year there are people that time it correctly, but the problem is it's a very small number. And then those people are wrong the next year. And it's a different small number of people that do it right the next year. Right. So what that points to is it's not really the people that have the secret sauce or the crystal ball that only they hold. It's that it just points to it being chance, right? So if you have a thousand people guessing, you might have one or two that are going to be right, but ultimately that's what it is. It's an educated guess. And right. just to kind of add to what Michael said to give you some some context. Mm-hmm. It, it's actually interesting. So we did an episode uh, of this podcast back in March of last year. Uh, it posted on March 17th. All right. So keep that date in mind, March 17th. And the title of the episode was what does COVID-19 mean for your portfolio? <laughs> mm-hmm. In that episode, we talked extensively and I would encourage anybody listening to this to go back and listen to it uh, just in hindsight and you know, grade us, see where we were right, where we were wrong. Mm-hmm. But We talked extensively about um, the history of recessions and what it can teach us, right, about the impact on your portfolio, what it can teach us about recovery and what the best things to do are through a downturn and a recovery. If we look at 2020, as we already, as Michael already mentioned, February 14th of last year was the high, okay? The bottom was March 20th. So it went from 3380 to 2304 in a little over a month. That's 31.8% of a drop. Now that's that's five weeks of real life time, of calendar time. So if you sold, you had if you sold at the peak, you had five weeks to get back in. If you waited five weeks in a day, you missed the bottom. If you sold four weeks with four weeks left. So in other words, if you sold a week after the, the top, you had even less time to make that decision. So just to kind of contextualize how quickly these things happen. The recovery started after five weeks, okay? Mm-hmm. And we posted that episode on March 17th. <laughs> and so th- this was, you know, the, if you go back and listen, the context of that episode, we don't have a crystal ball. We're sitting here, you know, looking out at the abyss, saying, hey, we don't know what the future holds. The, certainly no one at the time was saying, hey, we're through 98% of it. Well, little did we know three days after that episode was posted, we were through it, Okay. <laughs> And so that's that's how these things typically go. And so if anything, you know, 2020 should be a really good teaching opportunity and, uh, you know, for for everyone that invests of what these experiences are like and inform our decisions moving forward. And, you know, just because it, it's so clear in our minds, I, I think it's important to harp on it, to go back and, you know, look at it, um, analyze it, dissect it and see how it can help us in the future. Michael, I've asked this question before on this podcast to you, um, but is it ever a good idea to cash out to escape market downturns? What about even partially? So here's what I'd say. Um, I I, I love the way you're asking these questions. Yeah, because tricky question. (laughs) Yeah. Would it ever be a good idea to cash out to escape a market downturn? It would be a brilliant idea if you knew for a fact that a market downturn was coming and you could cash out, it would it would be a halfway brilliant idea. And only halfway because as markets recovered, do you have the same brilliant idea of when to get back in? Mm-hmm. So the the answer I would say is no, 
it's not a good idea to get out to escape market volatility. What is a good idea is not to have a liquidity constraint that makes you have to sell when you don't want to. And those are two very different answers because one is, is it ever a good idea to think I know something, to feel something, and so to make a move based on my perception of what is coming in the future? And, and, and I would just say, you know, we're back to the crystal ball. Mm. Bad idea. But it is a good idea to not have a cash constraint uh, that means I might need to raise cash to live this year and I'm going to have to do it in a down market. So mm-hmm. uh, what that means is for retirees, for instance, not are you sitting on a pile of cash? That's not necessarily the answer. But the answer should be, I have assets in my portfolio that are in times of stress, especially negatively correlated to equity returns so that I can, you know, when markets go down, I can sell some of that negatively correlated asset and be okay. Um, and, and, and that can be something like this year, what we saw were uh, U.S. Treasuries tips uh, did extremely well. Um, mm-hmm. Markets, you know, going down, treasuries going up. There were some, uh, there were some uh, anomalies in the way that prices reacted based on treasury. Uh, when, the, when, the, when the Treasury stepped in and said, hey, we're going to act as the ultimate backstop for all fixed income instruments that are, you know, certain credit rating. So it did affect it somewhat. But if you held, uh, say, on January 1st, you had a 50-50 portfolio, mm-hmm. uh, 50% S&P, 50% was uh, long duration U.S. Treasuries tips, treasury, uh, uh, inflation protected securities. And then by the middle of March, uh, what you would be able to do, or, you know, throughout March as, as, as markets tanked, again, setting aside anomalies, uh, you would have been able to sell something that had increased or lost very little value while you waited for your equities to recover and you'd be able to continue to fund your life. Now, it doesn't mean that you would not have to sell some principal, which, you know, as a retiree, that's sometimes your goal, but it's it's not usually feasible. But that is a very different question. Like, do I ever want to be caught needing to raise $50,000 when everything that I own is is worth less than it was a month ago. And to Adam's point, what you own is not a pile of cash. It's a block of shares. So if, you know, I have to sell, uh, let's say I have to sell 4% of my portfolio to raise the cash that I need to live this year. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to sell 6% of my portfolio, uh, to raise the same amount of cash because prices have, have gone down. So I want to have some other asset where I can sell, you know, the same percentage or less of that asset uh, to raise the cash. So it's a long-winded answer, but it's it's basically just trying to to illustrate the point that 
you know, if you're if you're worried about cash, if you're just saying, hey, I want to have cash in place, that's a portfolio construction issue. You need to have a portfolio that's yep. constructed so that you can get to the cash. I, I think that's really well said. And I would also just point out, you know, for, for listeners, if you're if you're a do-it-yourself investor, this is why it's so important what Michael just said. That's why it's so important to factor in two things. One is your time horizon, right? Mm-hmm. Which it's not necessarily dictated by your age, but largely it is. And also the use case for the investment, right? If you have a brokerage account and you're putting money in it for a home or for a child's education, staying on top of those things as you move through time, you know, your your proximity, how close you are um, to the the need for that cash is going to impact how much liquidity you might need. In other words, how much of your portfolio needs to have those uncorrelated assets Michael's talking about. So not overlooking your time horizon um, and also just the importance of diversification. That's really what Michael's describing is the value of diversification, particularly if you have a cash concern or a cash need. Exactly. And and Michael, so how should um, people be understanding risk in their portfolio? Talk a little bit about assessing risk tolerance before market dar- downturns. So I think what you want to do, every portfolio that you construct, if you look at it and you say, historically, what has this portfolio experienced? That data is available. So what we do uh, in, in what I think a lot of advisors should do that, that benefits clients is you look back and you say, historically, hey, this is the worst experience that we would have had. And when I talk to people, I, I tell them, I say, I think that a lot of times what we do is we look and we say, well, if things go well, I would get this. And it's kind of like going on a date with somebody and everybody, everything goes great. And you're like, I could totally marry her. Well, of course, because you've experienced a date, like it's not, it's not real life. I think what you want to do is you want to see people under periods of stress and say, but I want to spend the rest of my life with that person, you know, with, with a person who reacts this way or or a person who has this attitude towards things. And so by the same token, you look and you say, okay, well, a portfolio that was constructed that had this much equity, that had these characteristics, that had this much emerging markets, that had this much, you know, developed international equity, this Mm. is the worst it's ever performed. Now, that doesn't mean going forward something else might happen that makes it even worse, but you can look and you can say, hey, over 20 or 50 years, this is the worst experience I've had. Mm-hmm. And so what would I have done? Would I have stuck, stayed the course or would I have gotten out? And if you're like, no, I couldn't have tolerated that much of a downturn, then you move to a different portfolio and you say, okay, well, what would this portfolio have been accepted? And, and you look at it and you say, oh yeah, I would have stuck around for that. That wasn't as bad. And I think that's the thing that you want to do up front. You want to be able to look at a portfolio, to look at historical performance. And while it's, you know, we always say this, anybody who's looked at financial literature knows past performance, not a guarantee of future returns, but Mm -hmm. it does give you an idea of the type of volatility that you could expect. And I think where, um, where I've taken, I think the, the, the biggest emotional toll of this past year for advisors has been, hopefully, has been to realize there were clients who were 
in the portfolios that were too aggressive for them. And we let them get in those portfolios as advisors. And if we did let them get in those portfolios as advisors, um, and then they got out, that's kind of heartbreaking for us because Mm -hmm. we, we let them get into a situation that they weren't going to be comfortable in. Ultimately, we talk through these things and it's their decision, but, um, our goal should always be to get into something that we're going to be able to stay in through the long term. Why it's helpful to kind of, again, glean lessons from last year, right? I mean, in all fairness, it, as we said in the podcast we recorded back in March, this was a, a new type of stress on the market in terms of the causation. So it was new for investors. It was new for us as advisors. And so our job is to sit and, and look and say, okay, what could we have done better? How could we have, you know, assessed risk tolerance even more? Um, uh, how could we have defined it even more precisely? So that if we encounter something like this again, we can be more confident that our clients and, and investors in general are more properly positioned to make it through without feeling the need to move to cash. You know, one of the one of the advantages we have as advisors is, you know, of course we're fiduciaries and we care about what we do um, and we take it very seriously, but ultimately our clients' money was earned by them. And so that money mm-hmm. represents their life, their time, their energy, their future. We have the ability as third parties to be objective mm-hmm. and to look at it much less emotionally. I get why people are emotional. I'm I'm susceptible to that same instinct with my own stuff, but our advantage is we can be more objective. We can look at the data and say, what does the data tell us is the best course of action here? And if nothing else, we're just here to remind clients of things they already know. Ultimately, these are things we talk to clients about before they ever become clients. Okay, so a lot of this is simply reminding them why they work with us in the first place, why you invest like this in the first place. I know when you're clear-headed and when you're not under times of duress, I know these are the things you believe to be true. I know these are the philosophies you adhere to. Let's let's focus back on that. Let's get back to that. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Uh, Michael, if we had to land the plane here, um, I'll give you my final. So cash might make you feel better in the short term, but it can hurt you uh, in the long term. Prove well, me right. <laughs> I mean, you, you go back to the first thing, purchasing power. Uh, if I just sat on cash, it's not going to get me where I need to go. Ultimately. Um, if I tried to get in and to get out, uh, there's very little evidence. Uh, I've, I've got a friend who's an advisor, who's a lot more active than we are. And, um, earlier this year, we were talking about COVID back when it was still a thing in China. And, uh, he didn't, he didn't believe that it was going to be that big of a deal. And I remember telling him, I was like, dude, the Chinese have quarantined people and they're not necessarily the biggest advocates of human rights. So if they're taking this action, I think it's a lot more serious. Um, he thought I was crazy and doctors who thought I was crazy. What's interesting is I wasn't crazy on that. Like it, it was a big deal. What, what, what eventually happened is he got his clients and took them out of the market. He didn't get back in the market because I still thought it was a massive deal. I was like, no, markets aren't going to recover. Now, uh, as quickly as they did. And so when we were talking on our podcast, I was telling him the same thing. I was like, Hey, government put in $2 trillion. That's a 10th of our GDP. I think that we're going to be, 
you know, equity markets are going to be fine long term. I have, you know, different views about what's going to happen. Um, but if, if I said, hey, I was right, COVID is a big deal, I would still have to say, but I would have been wrong about when to get back in. That's why, what did I do? I stayed in the market. Why? Because it's going to go up, it's going to go down. I don't know when it's going to go up, I don't know when it's going to go down. But I don't have a two-month time horizon. You know, if you, if you want to uh, look realistically, I have a 20-year time horizon. And I was pretty convinced that between now and 20 years from now, markets will have gone up and I should be invested. Adam, anything to add or any final points to make? Um, I mean, I think the only last point I kind of want to make just from a very high level, um, I think the takeaway that I want to get across here, at least from my perspective, is what can we learn from 2020? As just a, an average investor, a do-it-yourself investor, what can we take away? And I want the takeaway to be human emotion and human perception of markets in any given moment is a very bad predictor of what will actually happen. Mm-hmm. And 2020 demonstrated that more than anything. I talk to a lot of people every day and I ask them, you know, if I were just to ask you, what are your feelings about 2020, right? It's, it's largely negative. It was a challenging year in a lot of ways, but as it relates to markets back in March, April, May, no one would have thought that at the end of the year, we'd look back and we'd say that the S&P 500 had a 16.6% return for 2020. Okay, so nothing about the journey of 2020 would have pointed to 16.6% return. Mm -hmm. So just let's, I I want that to sink in. I want that to take effect that, you know, 2020 was just as good of an example as we're ever going to get that our perception as people of what's going on is not a good indicator of what is going to happen and therefore should not be a good uh, indicator of what the next course of action is. But by the way, uh, I would add this to what Adam just say, said. Uh, I think in 2019, Penn State, there was a study that came out. Researchers at Penn State did the study, and they talked to people who had anxiety disorders, and 91% of the things that people worried about didn't come true. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, people were like, this 90. is my list. <laughs> yeah, so over 90%. Now, you know, if you have a generalized anxiety disorder, maybe you, you would sit back and say, well, I don't have that. I'm a rational person. But it, it, it actually just proved that the way the human brain uh, was wired, that we're, we're prone to see things and, and worry about things that don't occur. The other right. thing is, we've talked about this ad nauseum. The media is trying to get you stirred up, is trying to yes. get you worried, is trying to get you to click. And so... Mm-hmm. When we do those things, we're playing into their hands. And so Mm -hmm. I would echo exactly what Adam said. I think it was very well said. Perfect point. It's just I couldn't help but give you a data and study to to put with it (laughs) because that's really the only value I add. (laughs) Nerd. Nerd. (laughs) All right, guys. Anything else you guys want to add before we get out of here with this very good episode? I don't no, think I'm so. Good. That's all I had. Yeah. Great question, Jared. Thank you. You guys Perfect. have a great day. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to Bye you guys. later. We'll see you next time. 
If you have a question for either Michael or Adam concerning this topic or anything else, please visit assetbuilder.com slash podcast. There you can find their contact information as well as the show notes for every single episode. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com. Thank you.